0: Dear Father, we're so grateful that we can be learning together, sitting at the feet of the great physician, and I pray that you'll give uh, Dr. Terran freedom and wisdom as he's speaking to us. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Christ's name, amen. Sir, so as you can see the topic uh, or the title of my talk is the despised prescription And we're gonna dive in and figure out exactly how I derived that title um, So my talk today a lot of it is centered in pediatrics at least the Opening part of the talk. I'm not a pediatrician myself. I just graduated a family medicine residency in Fort Worth, Texas But as part of that have uh, seen a lot of pediatrics and I'm currently actually covering for a, p- for a pediatrician in my locum tenens job, so Um, My world at the moment seems to be uh, Very saturated with pediatrics. I've been covering them for a month And I also have two private pediatric patients that I come home to at the end of the day too. very small children. So um, I think God in his wisdom brings uh, Very good lessons at a timely fashion into our lives. So we will talk about uh, really just kind of recognizing the chronic diseases that we're starting to see in our pediatric populations really has a spillover of what's happening in our adult populations. And we'll talk about uh, really just screening and diagnosis of certain conditions in pediatric populations. We'll also discuss why does this matter and if there's anything that we can do as healthcare professionals to change this. And last but not least, which is primarily the meat of our talk, is to really um, talk about how we can do this, more so through the power of a living personal testimony, really enable our patients to have better health outcomes. Uh, With that being said, let's again pause for a word of prayer uh, before we start. Dear Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of being here. We thank you uh, for loving us so much. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be present here, Father, that as we learn together and reason together, Father, that you would give us wisdom on how to cooperate in your work of healing in this age. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So like any good medical talk, we will go ahead and start off with a case, which was a patient that I saw myself in my senior year of residency. He came to me for a well child check, a seven-year-old Hispanic male. And most of the time before I go into a patient's room, especially a pediatric patient, I always look at the growth chart, right? That's what we uh, live by as providers for pediatric patients. Um, and I knew he was in a bit of, a tr- in, in a bit of trouble. Um, and so I started with my nutritional inventory, which is what I always do uh, with my pediatric patients. And so I just found, you know, he was really taking large amounts of milk and juice um, on a daily basis. He had um, a lot of carbs with each meal. And also, dad said that he, he admitted that he would take him to have donuts on a couple of days before dropping him off at school in the mornings. Uh, soda was frequent for him, and he also had several fast food meals during the week. And they estimated that maybe he was watching. An hour or so of um, TV and having screen time and and I think that this is a a very conservative estimate of (laughs) what parents will tell you in a visit Um, and so when I looked at his growth chart for weight at least that's where he was at and I wish I was lying when I said that that's the majority of my patients it 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 really is and so you can see he has been so to speak off the charts for weight uh, for a long time but we do not uh, really categorize weight in pediatric populations based on their um, weight solely. It's actually by their BMI. And so the CDC has set these guidelines and essentially I'll draw your attention to an overweight pediatric patient. It's any patient above the 85th percentile for their age and gender, okay? And so this is exactly what my kids' growth chart has looked like in terms of BMI. Um, And I will tell you right now, I've been seeing kids exclusively for an entire month and probably eight of my 10 patients, their growth charts look like this before I go into the room. So it's always like I'm always preparing myself for kind of the same speech that I've had to, been, that I've had to give over and over for these past weeks. Um, and I have to remind myself, even though that I'm seeing a lot more adult-like illnesses in my pediatric populations, they are not small adults. And this is something that I have to remember that my pediatrics attendings used to drive into me because their physiology is different, their cutoffs are different, and if we think about them in terms of adult values, we will miss certain things. And a perfect example of that is this kid's blood pressure readings. So since about four years old, these were his blood pressure readings, and through the lenses of adult medicine, maybe they're not too terrible of blood pressures, maybe, Um, but he was in fact very hypertensive this whole time. Um, On physical exam he also had truncal obesity and of course acanthosis nigricans, the one thing that you're always taught to look out for as a marker of insulin resistance. Um, So in talking about hypertension for children, really you, if you recall those charts, they have a chart, it's determined based on their age, their gender, and their height. That's how you determine if they're hypertensive or not. Uh, systolic and diastolic mar- um, readings are of equal importance, and if there's a discrepancy, you take the higher value to determine their cutoff. And so basically, above 95th percentile for their age and gender will be hypertensive. And then you subcategorize it by hypertension stage 1 and 2, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of screening for diabetes, uh, the ADA has set these guidelines for screening for type 2 diabetes in asymptomatic patients, okay? and so. One, they have to be overweight or obese and have any of the following um, criteria. So they have to have a first degree relative that has type 2 diabetes. And this can also include the mother having been uh, gestational hypertensive during that patient's, uh, during that child's gestation, or a member of a high-risk uh, ethnic group, and also signs of insulin resistance. So acanthosis again, but if you'll also recall things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, if they have dyslipidemia or hypertension as well. Um, and the ADA really recommends screening for this at the age of 10 or on the or at the onset of puberty um, And you can repeat it every three years um, But I found in practice a lot of pediatricians are actually doing it on a more frequent basis because a lot of their patients have such high risks for diabetes and Really in terms of diagnosis you can use the traditional um, ways of diagnosing diabetes in an adult population and a1c is still being studied um, In how well it can be used in pediatric populations, but a lot of them are using that for diagnosis as well Um, In terms of dyslipidemia the National Heart Lung and Blood Institute guidelines is what the AAP um, recommends as well as the AHA and For these populations really you do a first-time universal screening from the ages of 9 to 11 So you're checking them um, for lipid disorders regardless of whatever their um, history is if they have, for example, a, a history of a hereditary lipid disorder, then you're checking a little bit earlier. Um, and then later again at 17 to 21, you try to avoid the areas around puberty just because there's lipid excursion naturally. And so you might get some spuriously high numbers if you do that during that time. So I may be talking about all of these things. They're chronic diseases. And the reason that I'm mentioning this is that because there's a lot more of the components of metabolic syndrome that we're also starting to see in our pediatric populations. And it matters because this is a huge problem for our country right now. 12.7 million adolescents and children in our country are um, obese, okay? And this number seems like a pretty conservative number if you think that's 17%, but that's just of the obese patients. This doesn't mention kids that are also overweight. Um, And from 1980 to about 2014, this number has tripled and quadrupled respectively for children and adolescents. rising, of course, at higher rates, um, the studies consistently show too that obese children become obese adults. Um, And they also inherit the same types of diseases that adults have, right? So hypertension and hyperlipidemia, um, metabolic syndrome, of course, and things like obstructive sleep apnea. Um, Just to name a few, the list is actually quite long. Um, And this doesn't really mention the psychosocial implications. Um, I can't tell you how many kids I see on a daily basis that struggle with depression that have positive depression screens because of a lot of these things. You know, they have poor self-esteem, a distorted body image. And so the thought dawned on me in residency when I initially had these um, ideas about this talk that we are not dealing with well children as much anymore. We're actually having quite a few visits of just um, quite ill children or, that ha- or children that will have a future of a lot of illness. And it really struck me when I read this in Councils on Diets and Food, um, Recently Ellen G. White says suffering and mortality was going to prevail everywhere especially among children She said how great is the contrast between this generation and those who lived during the first 2,000 years? Um, and really after that a whole bunch of other um, Commentary from her from her book came along you know we tend to think uh, that our children are our future people we always say that and She does say that as well. She says they're an index of the future society, but it's a much more grim outlook. She says what are we to hope for? She says that a lot of this generation has little self-control, little principle or conscience. Um, She says because of gross violations of natural laws and the way appetite and passion rule, that our Earth is turning into a second Sodom. And we know that the Bible talked about the conditions being like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the flood um, at the end of times. Uh, And so this really captured my attention uh, as I was thinking about this very topic. Um, Unfortunately, when it comes down to it, when I've counseled a lot of parents uh, in the visits and talked about these nutritional inventories, the interesting thing is that they always kind of look at their children. They glare across the room and they give them this look like, see, I told you not to eat that or I told you you were eating too much, but sadly, they're who they learn those habits from and those patterns. And Ellen G. White says just that. You know, she says that parents bequeath to their offspring these desires and tendencies, And she ca- says perverted habits and loathsome disease corrupt the blood and enervate the brain. She says that because of that, these people remi- they remain ignorant of the result of their violation of nature's laws. She also says on page 120 of Councils on Debt and Food that, you know, basically these transgressions of natural laws, they don't stop with just the person who's doing it. She says they're passed on from generation to generation to their um, offspring. And I think it's very true as we speak on this very topic, You know, the health bill right now, or as of 2008, for obesity in this country is 147 billion. And of course, some time has elapsed since then. And according to the WHO, more people, of course, we know this, are dying from chronic disease each year. And that number is quite startling. They say that greater than 88% of the nation's death is due to chronic disease in this country. And this is at a time when healthcare costs more than ever. If you really think about it, looking at this map, it's also put up by the WHO, the US is above and beyond all the rest of the countries in terms of healthcare expenditure, okay, based on whatever way that you want to look at it. But this is, there's a discrepancy because even though we spend the most per capita, on healthcare, we're not the healthiest country in the world. The WHO and the UN say that the US ranks 37 in world healthcare systems. So there, it's confusing because we're actually not tracking with the amount of spending that we have in terms of health outcomes. And this is also baffling because after 40 years of aggressive management with CAD, which is the number one killer in our country, it's still continuing to claim more and more lives um, each year. Um, and if you'll see, cancer is number two, and of course, Um, Smaller numbers of stroke and of course uh, accidents, but chronic disease of course is the number one killer in our country and It's interesting because if you think about what was claiming the lives of Americans in 1900 It was totally different things like pneumonia things like tuberculosis diarrhea and dysentery were killing more people than heart disease and strokes alone And this may have been at a time where you may have done something very crazy to try to find healing. So people were doing things like bloodletting, applying leeches to try to take out the bad humors. Um, People were experimenting with arsenic and all sorts of other things. And so I think in a time with such limited knowledge, people were so desperate to live. They were so desperate to stay alive. So they tried anything, even if it seemed crazy at the time. And so I think that we are currently in a very similar situation. We are in a time that is calling for desperate healing in a nation that is suffering one of the greatest healthcare crises of all time. When I thought about this, I tend to get a little discouraged, you know, because I wonder, what have I been learning in medical school and in residency thus far? You know, I've been taught to really try to treat diseases and have better health outcomes, but it seems like things are just getting worse and worse. Maybe it's that my patients aren't listening to the counseling that I'm giving to them. So in that kind of thought I went to the dictionary just to look up some things as I was preparing to think to talk to give this talk Um, Marion Webster. I always enjoy just finding What does the word mean and medicine if you see it says it's the science or practice and diagnosis of Of the diagnosis treatment and prevention of disease. So a great component of prevention in the study of medicine Healing on the other hand says literally meaning to make whole is the process of restoration to health from an unbalanced disease or damaged organism. So they're very different and don't necessarily um, equate each other. When I was looking at these as well, it took me to a synonym, synonym, and it had palliate. And this really was telling to me. It said to make a disease or its symptoms less severe or unpleasant without removing the cause. Of course, I'm familiar with palliative care, and that's something that you think that uh, end-of-life patients are on. but it made me feel like that's all I had been learning to do in residency and medical school. Am I really just palliating disease? You know, I prescribe more and more medications to try to see A1Cs drop, or try to see blood pressures improve, but never ever once have I felt that I've healed anybody of any of these conditions in the way that I've learned to practice medicine. So I wondered, is there still something that I can do or say to my patients to really try to make a difference? So I found a study that asked this very question. From the, Public Health, from the School of Public Health at Emory. They did this study and they asked the question, is motivation to adopt healthier habits enhanced by physician credibility and disclosure of personal healthy habits? And so the way they designed the study was interesting. They had a video that the participants watched. In one of the videos, the provider just gave her routine spiel about uh, how to be healthier you know we need this prescribed amount of exercise each week and this is the kind of diet that we should have and in the second video the same physician gave the exact same advice except for this time she had an apple on her desk and then she also had a helmet on the back of her chair and she said with each word of advice she just said oh and, and in a way, I make I try to do this by maybe biking to work or taking the stairs every opportunity that I have at work to get more steps in each day and when she talked about diet she said yeah I have I've, in, I've increase the amount of fruits and vegetables in my diet and decrease the amount of meat consumption in order to have a more balanced diet and the studies showed that the people who saw both videos by and large after seeing the second one they felt that they were more motivated to actually implement these changes into their personal life and there's also studies that have been done that suggest that physicians that know more about nutrition actually have healthier lifestyles and of course are willing to share these things with their patients so the conclusion from this study said hey Healthcare centers and medical training schools should be trying to advocate that uh, physicians in training actually take better care of themselves, because this will affect how they treat their patients. And as I read uh, Councils on Diet and Food again, I found this quote, and it was very interesting. So without saying anything at all, we can do a lot, is what Ellen G. White says. And so all of a sudden, it seems like just being healthy becomes evangelistic. You know, so when I have, and this has been true in my life because I found with my co-residents and uh, colleagues during my residency, they always had questions about why I ate the way I ate or why I chose this option instead of that option at the table. And you will not believe how many opportunities I had to not just talk about my diet, but witness for the gospel over a simple meal. And so as I thought and contemplated contemplated this, I I said, you know, The answer to our country's biggest problem lies in something as simple as what we're eating. And this, of course, is not earth-shattering. It's not anything new. It's not a new concept, right? Most of you will recognize this quote, let food be thy medicine, um, from Hippocrates. He's been accredited, of course, as being the father of modern medicine, right? Um, But I serve somebody who is the father of healing. And in Genesis one twenty nine said, "If you give, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with its seeds in it, this will be yours for food. And so as I thought about these things, it really helped me understand that a whole foods plant-based diet is one of the most practical ways that I can counsel my patients to have improved health outcomes to combat all of their metabolic syndrome. Uh, and this really has become the cornerstone of my counseling for a lot of my patients because when I counsel them in terms of food as opposed to just a disease, it all of a sudden starts to make sense to them a little bit more. And perfect proof of this is the fact most of my colleagues have said, I've heard them say, you know, it's just like when everything fails, you have to give them the come to Jesus talk. They say it that way. And when I found myself really counseling patients in these situations, I tell them, I ask them actually, what is it that matters to you? You know, Forget the diabetes and the hypertension. What are the really things that The things that you really think about on a daily basis and I get answers like this they tell me well I really want to be able to see my son graduate high school or some of them say I just really want to make it to uh, watch my daughter to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle so whenever I help them understand that the way you're eating allows you to prevent disease and to have health and longevity and not just more years but functional years it's like all of a sudden they start to pay more attention And one way that I've had great success in introducing this topic to my patients is by the Blue Zones. I'm sure many of you have heard about the Blue Zones. Um, It's kind of all over the U.S. now. They're trying to make a lot more cities more Blue Zone friendly, if you will. And Fort Worth just recently undertook this. Um, But when I talk to them, I tell them, you know, there's a lot of different Blue Zones around the country. And sure, a lot of people will say, maybe it's that it's cultural and they have very strong cultural ties and it's easy to eat healthy in these places. But I say, would you imagine that there's a population in the U.S. that's managed to defy the odds? And they're always incredulous as I tell them about Seventh-day Adventists. Um, And the reason being is that we, of course, in the United States are the poster children for the Western diet, right? We're the poster children for obesity. So when they find out that there's actually a population in the U.S. that is um, kind of surpassing the average lifespan, it, it really makes them pay attention. Um, I've never had the privilege myself of training or being at the Adventist Mecca, you know, uh, <laughs> Loma Linda, but I've been fortunate enough to visit. Um, in any case, um, in the Blue Zones Project, uh, Dan Buettner, when he published a study back in 2005, he really drew attention to Loma Linda Medical Center and the studies that had been done through the Adventist Health Initiative, or the Adventist Health Study. Um, and really, he named things like they're living, of course, 10.8 years longer than the general population. Um, and the one thing that I find very interesting is that they have been, these studies have been done in collaboration with the NIH, with the National, with the National uh, Institute of Cancer. And so as I thought about these things, I said, man, SDAs are scientifically interesting. The world is looking to SDAs to find out what's going on. Why don't SDAs find themselves that interesting sometimes? In his study, he talked about how we follow this message of health, okay? And he talked about, you know, people practicing this since the 1800s, what they abstain from, the types of foods that they eat, our scriptural basis for the diet that most Adventists do follow. Of course, he talked about Sabbath. And as I read these things in a secular study, I told myself, man, I was so convicted because I said this Dan Buettner guy is being more of an advocate for Adventism and for the gospel than I am and I'm a Seventh-day Adventist so as I thought about this I realized that I'm not the only one having this problem, okay, because in those studies, too there's some discouraging news and that says that a lot of the health benefits of the Adventist health message are actually dying with its centenarians because younger generations in the Adventist faith are not placing as much emphasis or importance on the Adventist health message. So that really hit home with me. It became personal at that point. And the reason I say that is because if you look at this picture, I was probably rolling my eyes at the Adventist health message <laughs> back in college because you know I was eating fast food. I loved Whataburger. It was my favorite thing to eat. And really, my, I grew up Adventist, first generation. But I lived in a region where the Adventist health message was not talked about. It wasn't practiced. It wasn't preached about on the pulpit. So most of the Adventists in my area just really did something that wasn't talked about. And it's not because of ignorance, because once I started learning about these things in medical school, I I undertook a study to try to figure out how I could be healthier as I started to have some health struggles myself. And time and time again, I encountered literature about Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, and all of this type of... uh, scientific literature, and it really convicted me at that point. And I said, "Wow, why have I been so oblivious this entire time?" And once I even found these things, I realized that I still had struggles with trying to accept whatever um, was preached by um, the Adventist health message. And I recall reading this one p- passage in particular one day in First Corinthians, as Paul is trying to tell the, Corinthians church, the Corinthian church about warnings from Israel's history. And I'll go ahead and read it, and you can read along. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, that people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not test Christ, he says, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages comes. And that basically means we're living in the end times. So if you think that you're standing firm, be careful and don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And as I read this, I thought, I've only been tempted by the things that are common to mankind. My struggle now is nothing different than what people have struggled with from the beginning of the Bible, from the beginning of the Bible. So I really thought to myself, I want to figure out if there are some examples in Scripture that can give me wisdom on how not to make these same mistakes and how not to be ruled by my appetite. I'm sure most of you recognize these symbols, right? It's the ubiquitous symbol for modern medicine. Some people believe that It was derived from a Greek god who was the god of healing and had powers to do so by serpents. Apparently, he had serpents in his uh, clinic or his area, um, and his name was Asclepius. So some people recognize this as the rod of Asclepius, but if you're intelligent, you know that there's a biblical account from where this came from. Um, And it comes from Numbers 21, where this story began. And as I went back to read this story one day, I found something interesting. And I thought, what was it that prompted this to happen, like the serpent hanging on this rod. What happened right before that to, to make that happen? And Numbers 21 is kind of chronicling what happened with Israel at this point. And it says that they grew impatient and they spoke out against God and, and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. You could also say they despised that miserable food. And so I asked myself, what food are they talking about? Most of you will know that it was manna that they were actually referring to. And this came as a shock to me because I always thought, man, I would love to taste manna. I I, I would just dream of the day when I get to taste manna. But it seems that the Israelites had a problem with manna almost from the beginning. Sorry, they started to hoard some of the manna. They tried to keep it longer than it should have been kept for. They tried to go out on Sabbath to look for it when Moses told them not to do that. And so it dawned on me that, you know, people have had problems with food addiction, with hoarding, and with food insecurity for a long time. And appetite has not, it's not new to this generation. But it was surprising to me because even though the yoke of bondage in Israel was a heavy one, so heavy that they had cried out for rescuing, they grumbled at the first privation, the first starvation that they ever had to face in the wilderness, even though God had provided every step of the way. Exodus 16.3 16, tells us this, and this is kind of when the first account of manna is um, relayed in the Bible, and it says, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, there we sat around pots of meat, and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. That's actually one of the statements that they had, and as I read this, I thought, man, the Israelites had no idea how many ways you could prepare salt, fat, and sugar to make it taste good. (laughs) All they were crying out for was meat, and you know, on a daily basis, as I try to counsel my my patients, my patient's parents, on what things that they just need to abstain from or have temperance in. In most cases, I find that if they just have a little bit of light, a little bit of education, that maybe it can make a difference for them. And Ellen G. White really had the same thought. She says, were all men acquainted with the living human machinery, they would not be guilty of doing this, unless indeed they loved self-indulgence so well that they would continue their suicidal course and die a premature death or live for years a burden to themselves and their friends and that's from ministry of healing page 131 so as i thought about that i said man maybe if we just had the right light at the right time and did the same for our patients we could actually start to desire the things that were good for us maybe we wouldn't detest the food that god has given us for our own health and benefit and as i had this thought i said wow the health message penned by Ellen G. White is actually modern day manna. It's manna for us in this day and age because it has been meant to show us dependence on God and keep us healthy and from dying premature death when everybody else around us is dying from these very diseases. And so I wondered, do we kind of detest this modern day manna the same way the Israelites did? Do we grumble and complain about it and say, oh, the prophet is too harsh. Too exacting, too strict. There's no way anybody can do this. Well, Numbers 11, 6, in talking about this same story, shows us that human nature really sometimes never changes. They, on another occasion, had intense cravings and wept so bitterly and asked, who will give us meat to eat? Because we have lost our appetite and we never see anything but this manna. So I wonder, you know, sometimes, like in this story, God gives us what we want. And in those occasions, on two occasions, he actually provided them quail, right? They covered the camp so thick that people went out and gathered for days. Um, and they, you know, satisfied their cravings. But every single time that happened, it brought death into the camp. People suffered. They suffered the consequences of it. And I would, would go so far as to say is that we are suffering the same results of disobedience Uh, To natural laws because that same number that I quoted earlier you can see this chart here the WHO shows How this 88% um, of deaths in the US is a result of chronic disease Uh, and most of it? You can see from cardiovascular disease cancer diabetes and various other things so as I consider these things in light of The greater light that we have been given on this. I wonder do people die needlessly are they dying because we don't have the tools to help them have better health outcomes and be healthy? Ellen G. White says that ignorance prevails upon the subject while light is shining all around them. Of course, she goes on to say that people still, their greatest concern is just, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? So I ask you today, and I as I asked myself so long ago, is there a light shining in me? Is there a light shining in me so brightly that with those in whom I come to contact with, whether I say anything or or not, will they be able to see something that is going to make them healthier and also bring them to Christ? One more story. You probably know this one very well. I thought I knew it very well. Jacob and Esau, two brothers, two different lifestyles, two different fates. At this point, Esau, of course, comes out from hunting. He'd had a long day. I'm sure he was so tired. The type of tired that when you come home, you say, man, I'm so hungry, I could eat a whatever you want to insert in there. Um, And at the moment, his brother happened to be making some wonderful porridge of lentils. And I can imagine it smelled so good. I love lentils too. Um, But he was so hungry, he said, hey, give me a bowl of that. And his brother, of course, said, we know the conditions on which he um, gave it. And he said, okay, fine. And he ate it and acted like nothing else happened when i was reading this story in genesis 25 i came across this verse and it made me think quite a bit it said then jacob gave esau some bread and some lentil stew he ate and drank and then got up and left so esau despised his birthright and i found myself wondering what does it mean despise i thought despise meant something else like he didn't outright hate his birthright to just you know for it to really for them to author it that way So I went to Patriarchs and Prophet to try to figure out exactly what this all meant. And here this account really showed me that in life, just like the two brothers, we also have two different choices. Ellen G. White describes them very differently, and this is in Patriarchs and Prophets chapter 15. She talks about Esau as being very impatient of restraint, occasionally kind. He liked the freedom of the wild chase. That's why he chose the life of a hunter. And at the end she says, the law of God was regarded as a yoke of bondage. Bent on self-indulgence, he desired, indulgence, he desired nothing so much as liberty to do as he pleased. And on the other hand, when she talks about Jacob, she says that he was thoughtful and diligent, caretaking, he had deep and strong affections for his family, um, foresight is the main thing, and she says Jacob was ever thinking more of the future than of the present. And maybe we know how that all played out in, in his desire to think about the future, and maybe he also had some influences that led him in that direction, but I wonder why sure, the birthright is, you know, wealth and all sorts of other things, but was it that big of a deal, what happened? And I found as I read on that it was a great deal for him to have carelessly given away his birthright because Ellen G. White says that from infancy, every Israelite boy had been taught that if you were the firstborn and had the birthright, you had the possibility to be in the line of posterity of which the Redeemer of the world would come. That's so interesting to me, is that all these boys had been told that, hey, from the very beginning, that if they had the birthright, of course, that maybe that one from generation to generation who'd been told about as this Messiah and this Savior would come through their family line. So this started to mean a little bit of something different to me. And as I went on and read, she said, but to satisfy the desires of the moment, he carelessly bartered the glorious heritage that God himself had promised to his fathers. His whole interest was in the present. He was ready to sacrifice the heavenly to the earthly to exchange a future good for a momentary indulgence. And as I read that line, I thought, how many times have I done exactly the same thing? How many times do I, being so hungry or seeing something so delicious in my, right in front of me, not think about what it means for my health, about my future outcomes? I wondered if I too had been a despiser like Esau. So I took again, another task, just to really figure out what despise meant in the context of the Bible. If you look up the word despise in Merriam-Webster, it says to hate, to abhor, or to make of no value. And I think what the Bible's trying to tell us is the latter of uh, these three definitions. Um, so I looked in other verses in Leviticus 26:15 through 16. The Lord, when he's talking to the Israelites, tells them if they despise his commandments and his statues or our soul abhors my judgment, I also will do this, I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall cause sorrow of heart. So from the very beginning, disobedience to natural laws always ended up in disease. And that was when they had been given a promise previously that said, hey, if you just follow these statutes and let them be what rules your heart, guess what? I'm going to keep you from all the diseases that are afflicting the Egyptians because I am the Lord that healeth you. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 says this, In the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, without self-control, despisers of good, headstrong, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Those are strong, strong words. And as I continued reading, I found one day in my devotion something that really made a whole different spin on this. In Hebrews, right after I was reading about, you know, the champions of faith, um, I came across this in Hebrews 12. And it was warning about, really, the types of character you want to develop. And it says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, some versions say godless, they call him a godless person, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you knew that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So I wondered, did I not just have the same experience as Esau until I struggled with health or until we sometimes struggle with health, do we really um, find or lament the results of our disobedience to God's natural laws? So I naturally asked myself, why had I despised my birthright for so long? We have been given this incredible birthright in the Adventist health message about how we can stay healthy, be prosperous, and also bring others to Christ and and bring health to them in a time when disease is is killing the the majority of people in this country. So I ask you today, have you despised your birthright? Are you personally acquainted with our health message? Maybe you've grown up SDA like me and never practiced it. Have you been convicted about why this is important to your physical life now, but also to your eternal salvation? Because in my study, I found that what we eat and how we eat actually is a spiritual matter. There's so many people that don't want to believe this, but it surely is. And if you've ever found yourself discouraged with this uh, theme, here's some encouragement for you today. and the reason why you should find value in spiritual things that maybe you've despised or devalued in the past. First Thessalonians 5, 16 to 23 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. So don't despise the prophets or the words of prophets. Test all things, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Not just from some forms of evil, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul and body body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. So in this great struggle that we have with what one of my patients refers to as the appetite beast, there is some help. There is divine assistance. <laughs> And we should not be discouraged, and we most certainly should not despise heavenly counsels that can help us to turn back the tide of disease in these perilous times. So my appeal to you is going to be through the words of Ellen G. White herself. In Ministry of Healing, page 329-330, she says, I appeal to those who profess to believe and obey the word of God. Can you as Christians indulge a habit that is paralyzing your intellect and robbing you of your power to rightly estimate eternal realities? Can you consent daily to rob God of service, which is his due, and rob your fellow men, both of service you might render and of the power of example, she says. Have you considered your responsibility as God's stewards for the means in your hands? So we are a group of medical professionals And dental professionals and every other um, specialty here to discuss these very topics and how we can help others um, be reached with the gospel through medical evangelism I think it's important that we continue to consider our responsibility to God as his stewards and again the point of all of this is if we want to reach people with the gospel we have to be living it first so we'll end on A follow up with my pediatric patient, after I saw his parents, um, after I saw him that first visit, we had a good heart to heart and talked about small changes that could be made. I counseled them on a plant-based whole foods diet and we discussed various other small changes that could be made and he came back after two months, had a 10 pound weight loss in the span of that time frame His blood pressures actually were in the normal range now and I've had many more other occasions in which this has happened. So it has encouraged me to continue pressing forward, even when it seems like people aren't listening anymore. They still do listen. And if that's the one out of 10 lepers that comes back and says, hey, it worked, then praise God for that. And so I will give you this last challenge. In your commitment to learning what the, uh, in in your journey in the art of healing, may we strive to heal disease more than just palliate, And more than anything, may we believe more and more in the Word of God and of the prophets as a life-saving prescription and most certainly start to live it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org